News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there's been a lot of focus on what's going on in Ottawa. There have been protests causing disruption in other parts of the country as well. Take what's going on in Coots, Alberta. Demonstrators there parked their trucks and vehicles. They blocked the 24-hour border crossing into the United States. So the RCMP did yesterday manage to clear a lane each way on the highway, but there are still a lot of problems there. We thought, let's check in and find out how it's going. Joining us now is Jim Willett, who's the mayor of Coots, Alberta. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, you're welcome. What is the situation like today? Is there a route to the border? Uh, There was. uh, I believe, just reading from the uh, social media of the protesters here, they say they closed it about 2 o'clock again. And I haven't had a chance to... I just got on here myself, so... Haven't had a chance to uh, actually check and, sh- and see. I know there's no vehicles going past my house and I face the highway. So, so I'm I'm thinking that uh, something fell apart last night, and uh, we're we're not where we were, but we are still blocked. Uh, the RCMP had started letting commercial vehicles through, and I think somebody got upset about that. So. Uh, hmm. So, Mayor Willett, I'm, what, what, I'm guessing because I haven't talked to anybody. Mayor Willett, what has it been like the last five, six days in your community? Tiring, uh, <laughs> uh, frustrating, uh, frightening for some citizens. Uh, you, you have to understand we're a village of 250 people that sits just off the highway here. Most people don't even know we're here. And, uh, to suddenly have this much attention, this much uh, traffic, this many, uh, the barricade on the outlet to the highway that uh, most people would use to get to where all their amenities are. We have none here in town. Uh, it's, it's been a, uh, I've heard it compared to a siege, uh, uh, hostage taking. It's, it's not really that way. Nobody, uh, in the, the protest group is, has any designs to hurt anybody in here. It's just that uh, we're kind of collateral damage. We're uh, whoever planned the thing, or if it was planned in the beginning, didn't really think it through as far as how they're going to deal with uh, the people who live here in the village. What has been, though, the reaction then of the of the groups when you point out to them, listen, you're, you're hurting people in our community? I've had no contact as of yet with the protesters uh the uh the feeling that you get and uh i've heard even some of the, the members of the group have posted that uh it is kind of a uh it's a conglomeration of a bunch of different uh it's almost like you brought a whole bunch of factions together and then they're trying to rule by committee and that doesn't work and so they're working on getting some sort of a command structure where they've got a uh, a spokesperson and somebody that can talk for the group and then and that uh, so it's it's in a very formative stage yet I think so wow okay it's kind of, it's kind of the you don't want to say mob but it's that's the the word that comes up because it is uh, that kind of 
That feeling. That kind of a feeling. Yeah. yeah. But then, Mayor Willette, what about help? What about the RCMP? What about the Alberta government? What kind of assistance is there? I mean, clearly the people in your community need some assistance. Uh, yeah, I've... Uh, again, you have to remember, this is a very fluid situation. There are things going on that I can't tell you about. But uh, the, uh, the Alberta government has offered uh, to help in any way they can. They are the same boat as me. Uh, so far, there's the, it's been hard to find a leader who can speak for the whole group. Uh, Rebel News has hired them a lawyer. That doesn't help. And uh, I'm sorry, that was a political comment in the personal opinion. Um, but uh, the uh, I talked to uh, Minister Bossano, who is a liberal uh, cabinet minister from Edmonton. He's offered any assistance that he can give. The, the thing is that we have to figure out how to, to get that assistance. So um, it's a uh, it's a fluid situation right now. Minister Zani, who is the uh, transportation minister here, I, I may be wrong, but I believe that's right, <laughs> here in, uh, in Alberta has offered uh, any assistance that she can give. So I, I'm in contact with several people at different levels of government and and uh, the RCMP have been working at negotiating obviously uh, sometimes their negotiations I mean they come with baggage so uh, anyway it's it's that's tough. I mean, it obviously sounds very difficult, but for for you, for, I mean, you're look, you're trying to look after the residents in your community. I can't even imagine how frustrating this is. Do you do you wish more would happen? Like, do you do you think it's time to clear this out? Well, yeah, I think it is. The the uh, the point has been made. Everybody knows now that these people are frustrated and what their their reason is. And I have to go. I have to say that I'm in agreement with that. I, I mean, we're down here at the end of what was supposed to be, a pan, you know, the end of the pandemic. And uh, these truckers who had been considered on the federal level, these truckers had been, been considered uh, essential services, have basically been told, well, you're not essential anymore. And uh, you've got you to do it like everybody else that comes through the border. And it, it is a... Uh, I mean, you you get down to this, you're dealing with the last people that haven't done uh, the vaccination or they they are the, they call themselves the fringe at times. And it, it's true, but they're people too, and they have rights. And so I'm torn because I, I understand perfectly what they're saying. Mm-hmm. I understand the science behind the, well, you know, we don't want anybody to come in without a, without a quarantine. But uh, realistically, if you are told after two years of hauling goods back and forth when you were essential that now you're not really as essential as you used to be, it's going to be a blow to your ego and you're going to, you're going to wind up with what we've got here now that people are saying, well, they're, they're right. taking away my, my rights. They're telling me what to do. But Mayor Willett, and, you were so you're sympathetic, but are they winning you over with what they're doing now? Well, of course not. <laughs> right? I mean, that's the problem. Is that they, there may yeah, have been a lot of people who were sympathetic, but not with what's going on anymore? Yeah, that's the problem. And uh, we've got 
to reach some sort of agreement. But like I said, until you get some sort of a command structure where you're, where you're actually talking to the whole group through a spokesperson or through a, a leader, uh, it's very difficult to get anything uh, done. Uh, but that's the frustration I think that the uh, provincial and federal governments both feel is that you, you're dealing with uh, a room full of voices all with their own little agendas, yeah. all with a, a major agenda, but they've got all these other things as well. And it, it turns into uh, anytime you try and talk, well, you wind up at a shouting match and I want to be heard. And, and so until the group finds some organization, and I do believe they're working on that, then uh, we're going to have problems. Mayor Willett, listen, I appreciate your honesty and for joining us this morning. You're very welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, what a week it has been in Ottawa. Let's check in now and find out the latest. Joining us is David Aiken, Global National's Chief Political Correspondent. Morning, David. Hey, morning, Simi. How you doing? Yeah, crazy busy. <laughs> yeah. Like we need, we need all your reporters. Send all your reporters to Ottawa. We need help here. It's crazy. <laughs> I know you need a vacation after this past week. I am sure. Yeah. Uh, let's start first with the protest situation. What is going on on that front? Uh, it's still the same, pretty much as yesterday. There's a group outside, still honking their horns. Um, the uh, city of Ottawa, the residents here, increasingly frustrated with some of the, uh, with the noise, first of all, but also with some of the. Uh, there, there's a lot of reports of uh, intimidation, uh, threats made by some of these truckers. I mean, these truckers are here, or these protesters are here, ostensibly for quote freedom, freedom of choice. And if you walk by them wearing a mask, you, you'll get yelled at and screamed at to take your mask off. Um, so, as I say, a lot of frustration. Macy some counter-protests today from people, mostly uh, counter-protests aimed at Ottawa police, who, you know, there's a lot of chatter from local municipal politicians who um, who don't believe police uh, are being aggressive enough in moving these protesters out. Um, and then there's some issues around the protesters' source of funding. You probably heard they have a GoFundMe yes. uh, campaign. They've raised $10 million. And uh, and now at this point in time, GoFundMe is would like more information about how the money will be dispersed. And so the fundraising at this point uh, through that venue has been paused. So status quo, but, uh, you know, still uh, some things happening on that front. Okay, so there's all that. And then we have what happened in the last 48 hours with the Conservatives. Aaron O'Toole, no longer the leader of the party. Candace Bergen steps in. What went so wrong in the past week? Uh, well, it, for O'Toole, it was really uh, a whole combination of things. Uh, to be honest, his response to this protest convoy was, for many, the sort of the last straw. We talked to a lot of MPs when they finished up that vote yesterday, and it was a drubbing, I should point out. The vote was like 73-45. Uh, like, he didn't lose by a little. He, he lost by a lot. And I found that surprising. I thought it was going to be close one way or the other. In any event, these conservative MPs saying that O'Toole had basically, his his actions, some of his stuff, was was causing splits in the party. The party was becoming disunited, ununited, or whatever term you want to use. And all of them said that they took a step towards uniting the party. That will be Candace Bergen's job. She's the Southern Manitoba MP from Portage Lisgar. If O'Toole was the moderate face of the party from Eastern Canada, she's the opposite. She's definitely on the true blue conservative side from Western Canada. Speaking of the convoy, she's four square down with the protesters. She's had her she's out there on her social 
social feeds, you can see she's posing for photographs with Manitoba truckers here, and uh, and she, you know she, she will embrace them. And again, remember her liberal opponents, her NDP opponents, are condemning this convoy as you know rife with significant anti-Semitic um, uh, elements, racist elements. Uh, it, they think it's an illegal protest at this point. Conservatives, exact opposite. They're wrapping themselves around it. Um, she doesn't speak French, Candace Bergen. So uh, that's an issue for members of her Quebec caucus. For many Canadians, it might be an issue. You want to have a leader of a party that is a founding party of the country to be able to speak in both official languages. She doesn't. It's one of the reasons she's probably not running for permanent leader and, and will stay as interim leader. And, uh, you know, that's something she's going to have to deal with as well. But uh, in choosing Bergen, the party is definitely sort of, uh, this is the Western base, uh, sort of asserting that uh, it's primacy and probably it's priorities. Right. Now, the video yesterday that Aaron O'Toole put out was also very interesting because he talked about that, that this is one of the founding parties of Canada and we need to listen more to other people. How did that go over? Well, you know, he's not the leader anymore. As he says in the video, he says, I know it's, you know, my time at the podium has passed or as he had some phrase like that. And, and you know, it was a pretty nice statement. It's like 10, 15 minutes long. He didn't take any questions yesterday from reporters. He was not in the House of Commons. Which was such a shame, really, because I was in the House of Commons, and and the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had some very nice things to say about Trudeau. It was very generous, and and then everybody gave, including liberals, everybody gave O'Toole a standing ovation, but he couldn't see it because he wasn't there, and because his virtu- virtual proceedings, Trudeau was virtual, uh, the cameras stayed on Trudeau, and you couldn't see that. Well, anyways, he's sort of done. I don't expect to see O'Toole in the House of Commons for a little while. I'm sure he and his family take a break. Um, but it was uh, sort of a nice thought. Uh, are we in a mood to listen to that, listen to other people? We've got to come together. Uh, it doesn't feel like it right now, just given the, the protest has really galvanized the whole polarity of our politics it, here. As I mentioned, True. it's liberals and Democrats versus conservatives. And right now, conservatives just, they got to pull together. they got to unite themselves before they can think about, you know, re- reaching across the aisle and working in some sort of bipartisan way on some things. Oh, boy, so true. Uh, David, thank you for this. Try to take it easy. Sure, cheers. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, it feels as though scammers are getting more and more creative to try and separate us from our money. Take this latest example of a scam that is making the rounds. It preys on your desire to perhaps get that booster shot or to wait to hear from the government about your booster shot. It's COVID testing appointment scams. To learn more about this so that you can, you know, educate yourself and definitely don't fall victim to this, Simone Lees joins us now, President and CEO of the Better Business Bureau of BC. Simone, thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. This one sounds terrible. Like, it, like it, it, it's amazingly creative, but also it really preys on people's anxieties. Exactly. I mean, uh, what uh, the Canadian Anti-Prod Centre was hearing was that um, consumers are, are receiving phone calls from someone claiming to be a medical professional or some sort of public health employee asking you to make a COVID test appointment. Um, and from there, what they're really seeking from you is to get uh, your personal information, such as your name, birth date, health card number, and other sensitive details that they could use for identity theft. So you're right. It is it is something that's catching people at a time where we're already scared um, and um, from the people that we're looking to for help. Do you know if people have fallen victim to this? Where they've been providing information? Yeah. There's always a risk. Uh, certainly, um, when we look at data in the in the U.S., 
uh, we have seen examples of people where they've provided that kind of information. And we know that um, with identity theft, when you do provide that kind of information, it can take uh, years for that information to be used in a way that, um, uh, you know, puts you at risk financially. What do people need to remember here, Simone? I guess like we need to, it's gotten to the point where I feel like I judge any kind of text message or email that comes through. Like you really need to scrutinize these things. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I mean, if someone is calling you, um, that is your opportunity to to really pause and make sure that they are legitimate. Um, so whether you're getting it by phone, um, there are other examples where people are, are, are receiving texts or emails, or even when you're looking online um, to purchase a kit or something like that. These are all opportunities. So for you, um, if it's unsolicited, you need to take your take the information and then use a reputable uh, organization like ourselves, or in this case, you know, there's the BC Centre for Disease Control, and reach out to them and see who is the right place to call. Is it legitimate? And if you do find out it's legitimate at that point, you can um, provide them the information that's needed. Right, because you shouldn't be giving out your like credit card information or financial information for a COVID appointment because technically the government already has that info. Exactly. I mean, even your health card number, I mean, there's a lot of personal information. I think people are really comfortable with sharing information. I mean, we live in a world where that is what we do. We go online and, and we post pictures of what we had for dinner. Um, but if you start, uh, if you look at the information that you are sharing, for example, even your you know, that COVID, uh, showing your COVID test, it has your birth date on it. So why post that out into the public arena? It's not necessary. What are some of the scams that you've seen during the pandemic, Simone, that have been too successful? Oh, gosh. I I mean, really, because people are so connected to their computer, um, anything online is has been really, I would say, successful. Um, We saw that um, in 2020, uh, scams, that were online were roughly about 39% of all scams that were reported um, and 79% of them was there was loss. So that speaks to opportunity for a scam artist. So if you're getting something in that medium, if you're shopping online, if you are um, trying, even if you're, you're getting a social media type quiz, it's just a really good opportunity for a scam artist to catch your attention and then take your money. Are people getting better at, you know, at at spotting these things or are we still falling victim? It's a combination, right? So some people you're getting better at finding them, but I mean, scam artists are our businesses too. Um, This is what they do. Um, So just as you might become familiar with one example of a scam, another one is coming um, to you in a different way. Um, So yeah, some people are becoming quite, uh, you know, successful at seeing what they are. But then again, scam artists are becoming quite successful at adapting. Really, for, from a per- perspective of protecting yourself, the best thing for you to do is to start looking at broadly what are the things that are suspicious when it comes to scams and then being on the lookout for that. And that's things like um, you know, knowing the, the red flags of a scam. That's things like making sure you're not responding to unsolicited inquiries, taking the time to research any offer that comes to your attention. And really, our overconfidence makes us more vulnerable. Right. Like, don't respond right away. I feel like a lot of this would be, if you just take a breath, just like Google it or, you know, ask somebody a question about it before you respond to it. Exactly. 
I wish more people would, would do that too. And then we wouldn't have these stories out there. Simone, thank you so much for your time this morning. Anytime. I mean, if people do want to find out more information or if they see a scam, I would suggest we've got BBB.org. We've got Scam Tracker, which is a tool on our website. You can see what's happening live in our area. And then uh, there's the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, which is a great resource uh, for what's happening and what's happening live. Good advice. Thank you, Simone. Thank you. Simone Lees is the president and CEO of the Better Business Bureau of BC, talking about the latest scam. You may have seen this. You may It may have actually showed up on your phone, and that is you being texted uh, to book an appointment for a COVID-19 test. It may see you may have been waiting for that moment, and it may look legit, but some of them are not. If it's asking you for any information about yourself, it's not legit because technically, you know, the COVID-19 booking site already has that information about you. So it's just, it's unreal how these scammers can manage to adapt so quickly to take advantage of people. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about real estate, shall we? It's been a crazy, well, not just couple of years, but it feels like crazy last decade with the way prices have been going. But the BC Real Estate Association has just released its first quarterly report for 2022, and they're saying that they expect to see sales slow down over the next two years. But what does that mean for the market? Does that mean prices go down too? Well, Dane Idle is a lead analyst at Idle Insights and joins us now to talk more about this. Hi, Dane. Good morning, Simi. Great to be back with you. Well, nice to have you here because I'm confused by this then. So if sales are slowing down, what does that mean for prices? You know what? It's actually an interesting thing, right? So just because the sales are going to temper from where they have been, which were historic highs, it's going to be difficult to see a price uh, decline just simply because there still is such low inventory. So it's going to take a, a, a considerable amount of time to see the inventory reach levels where you get closer to a balanced market. Okay, so that just means to me, it sounds like people, I've heard this anecdotally from people, and that is they're not going to put their house up for sale or sell their house because they feel like they have nowhere to go. That's, that's really a, a common thought uh, prevailing throughout the market right now. It's, it's, it's very uh, disheartening to know that you could basically win the lottery by putting your house on the market, but you're going to have to spell, spend everything that you just gained to enter back into it. Uh, One thing that we are expecting for a trend here going uh, throughout 2022 and into 2023 is a lot of downsizers. So that really has been kind of missing from this market over the the past couple of years since COVID began. Uh, We've seen a lot of um, elderly people not really wanting to move into a a condo building where there's more access, uh, people are touching buttons, things of that nature. So as hopefully COVID begins to wind down here a little bit or the concerns start to lessen, we'll hopefully see the detached markets uh, rise back up with inventory. And the condo market is anticipated to do uh, much better this year because it really has missed out on these price growths over the last couple of years. Okay, but that's the other key then, though. I mean, there's not a lot of supply out there. Like, I'm somebody who's thinking about downsizing, but Dane, there's nothing out there. It's it's truly uh, horrific with the inventory. The detached market really only had 46,000 active listings throughout 2021, and that's down 27% from from the preceding five years of inventory. Conversely, the sales in the detached market is up 33% in 2021 compared to the preceding five years of average. So it is a a tremendously uh, competitive market on both sides. Where we're seeing uh, a, a noticeable differential is in the condo market. That uh, inventory has, was actually up 5% compared to its preceding five years. But over the last four months or so, we've really dropped off from around 4,500 active listings 
all the way down to 2,600 during the month of January. That seems crazy, though. So there's <laughs> there's literally nothing for sale out there. There's literally nothing right now. One um, aspect of the market that is prevalent is the pre-sale market. We've noticed a lot of building starts here over the uh, past uh, three or four years. Those are entering into their completion phase. That's one way to take advantage of the low inventory market is to potentially find a pre-sale that has a quicker completion. Uh, that's an option. But yes, the price escalation has been um, almost on the insane level. Uh, Another number that was released uh, during that update was 8.5% price increases throughout 2022. Just in the January month alone compared to December, both the detached and the condo market were up 6%. So in theory, there's only 2.5% price increases to go. I would argue there's probably going to see some more uh, price increases than just the 8.5%, especially in the beginning half of this year. Right. As the interest rates start to rise, you will start to see some of that uh, tempered sale or uh, purchasing mentality. But it is going to definitely take a time to see some balance return to this market. I know quite a few people, Dane, who are looking for a home and they're doing what traditionally, you know, we have always done. And that is they think about, OK, well, I'm going to move out of the city. I'm going to move a little farther out and the money will go farther, except the money is not going farther, Dane. <laughs> like even if you go look out in the suburbs, the prices are still high, very high. The, the suburbs, the kind of tertiary markets, the uh, they, they've really led this explosion in growth uh, for the, for the prices. It's it's really been the downtown core, uh, the historical market leaders that have lagged since the beginning of COVID. The uh, secondary markets, the suburban markets, they're they're the ones that have really led this thing throughout. Just a couple of examples. Um, so over the year over year, we have Maple Ridge up forty percent, uh, Pitt Meadows up fifty seven percent. Well, you have Vancouver West only up a nine percent. So it has really been the kind of outlying markets, where you can get more uh, bang for your buck, so to speak. And anything, any market that was below a million is definitely no longer. So the the kind of entry level markets have been uh, the, the prices have escalated. Yeah, exactly. There, there you go. Perfect way to say it. They're absolutely gone. So that'll start to. Um, make more people look at the condo market, the larger condos, two bedrooms, I expect to do very, very well this year. Okay, but are those being built? Are larger condos, because nobody wants any more, um, nobody's going to downsize into a 550 square foot condo. Unfortunately, they're not. Uh, the developers are still uh, trying to maximize their, uh, their, their income, of course. So a lot of the buildings are still on the smaller side. So um, you're probably looking at some of the older buildings uh, where you um, can still take advantage of the, the, the previous market where builders maybe built more for um, livability rather than just for profitability. There's still a lot to shake out, it feels like, in the market this, this year, wouldn't you say, Dane? Absolutely. Um, we're we're going to see uh, some trickling uh, ramifications because of the rise of interest rates. Plus, people are just fed up with these prices. So you will probably see some people give up on this market, which will eventually start to see a change. But it will take a, a prolonged period of time, I would expect, till 2023 before you start to see any price, uh, significant price corrections on a sustainable level. Right. Do you think that's what's happening right now? Is it, I, I feel that. like People are just giving up. They're like, I'm not even going to bother. They are. Um, that said, <laughs> they give up until they see a new listing that comes out that might be in their price range. And then, of course, we're still seeing many offer or many multiple offer situations throughout the market. Um, so it is it is difficult to enter right now, in all honesty. But just give it to maybe the spring, summer to see a little bit more inventory. Hopefully the buying does uh, subside a bit and we can return to a bit more of a balanced market. But I wouldn't bet that it'll happen this year, more than likely in 2023. Oh boy. All right, Dane, thank you. 
No problem, Simi. Thank you so much. Dane Idle is a founder and lead analyst at Idle Insights, talking about the BC Real Estate Association and their first quarterly report for 2022. And they say sales will slow down over the next couple of years. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that there's pretty much nothing for sale out there. So what have you observed about real estate in your neighborhood? What are the prices like these days? Is anything even for sale? I hardly see for sale signs anymore. Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. You've probably heard the word microdosing. Maybe you've wondered, well, what is that about actually? It's regularly ingesting small amounts of, of in this case that we're going to be talking about, a psychedelic substance. But is that good for you? Well, let's talk about an experiment that was recently done by scientists and researchers in Edmonton. Joining us now is Dr. Trevor Hamilton, the Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology at McEwen University. Dr. Hamilton, thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Simi, um, and thanks for your interest in my research. Yeah, tell me about that research. What have you been doing? So we've been doing a variety of studies in zebrafish, which are a very popular model organism these days. So after the mouse and the rat, the zebrafish is actually really gaining popularity uh, for use in the scientific community. And we've been particularly looking at uh, how certain drugs act on these fish, as well as whether or not these fish are, uh, can ex- experience and exhibit addiction behavior. Okay, and what have you found? Uh, we found that indeed they can. So our experiment started off with a very well-known drug in society, alcohol, uh, something that undergraduate students are very familiar with. And we uh, exposed zebrafish repeatedly for three weeks. Then we stopped exposing them for two days and then measured their subsequent behavior. And what we found was uh, these fish exhibited anxiety-like behavior similar to what a human would experience uh, undergoing withdrawal from alcohol. Okay, so was this? So we knew that about alcohol. So then, what yeah. did you do next? And so that's the the importance of science is we had to validate that indeed these fish were capable of getting addicted to things. So we did the same thing with nicotine and found, oh, great, this is true as well. They can also exhibit uh, anxiety like behavior during withdrawal. And now we've moved on to drugs that have. Uh, potential therapeutic value. So we started with terpenes. Uh, Have you heard of terpenes? I have not. What is this? Uh, So they are uh, uh, components of plants. So they're the chemicals that give plants uh, various aromas. Um, And so with the legalization of cannabis, um, we have a lot of, obviously, availability of different strains of cannabis. And Oftentimes, it's the terpenes that give the cannabis its distinctive smell uh, and taste. And so these terpenes not only give that smell and taste, but sometimes they can have uh, some therapeutic value. Uh, They could be anti-inflammatory. They could decrease anxiety. They could even increase uh, attention in some people. So we first sought to study terpenes, um, and we found that in some cases, limonene and myrcene um, do decrease anxiety-like behavior, again, in zebrafish. And interestingly, we found that they did not have any uh, long-lasting effects when we gave them repeatedly. And so as a a clinician, which my collaborators are, they were very excited about this because this means that we could repeatedly give this in theory to humans and it wouldn't have long-lasting detrimental effects. 
All right. So you started this, and what did you see? What did your research show? So that showed that, you know, terpenes have this potential effect to decrease anxiety short term uh, in fish, of course. And then the next step is, um, I think what, what a lot of people will be interested in is the use of LSD to try to do a similar thing. Um, so we know acutely in our lab, we found that LSD does decrease anxiety, decrease locomotion. Uh, and the question is, again, if we give it repeatedly, what does it do? Well, long story short, it doesn't do anything when you give micro doses of LSD to fish. So and, and, I, and I thank you for bearing with me here with all these steps. The final step is what happens now if we um, get fish addicted to alcohol and then during this process, microdose them with LSD. And the main question is, will that microdosed LSD decrease or um, eliminate the withdrawal symptoms and the distress caused by alcoholism? Okay, so then what happened then? Does it? Uh, that's, uh, this is in its infancy, and I have a master student working on this right now. So we have preliminary data that's promising, but I don't want to tell you yay or nay right now until we get it peer-reviewed and until it comes out um, in a scientific journal. Right, because it seems like it, this is a very popular subject these days, isn't it? Like this idea of microdosing LSD? It is, it is. And it started off, um, I mean, LSD has is, been around for years. It was initially synthesized in 1938, um, and it was used in the prairies, believe it or not, by a psychiatrist uh, named Humphrey Osmond, who gave it to patients to try to eliminate alcoholism. Then with the anti-drug movement and the war on drugs that came about in the 60s, um, alcohol, or sorry, uh, LSD became illegal, and that research more or less stopped. Um, but in the last decade or so, it's regained popularity. And there are a lot of researchers around the globe that have thought, wow, this you know, LSD and psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, these could have great therapeutic potential. So what are your questions about this? Like, what do you, you, it must have made you curious, right? And asked more questions. And so what do you want to find out? Um, so, yeah, so there are so many questions. You know, every study we have uh, leads to more and more questions. So firstly, we want to, um, we want to determine whether or not microdosing indeed can help alleviate drug withdrawal. That's the first step. But then the question is, what kind of pattern and what kind of doses are most appropriate to use? And then, of course, there's studying long-term effects of microdosing. You know, if we find that it doesn't have an effect in two weeks, you know, maybe it has longer-term effects. So we need to study that. And then if we want to take a, you know, a huge leap. We also want to look at transgenerational effects. So just because microdosing may not have an immediate effect right away, we want to make sure it doesn't affect the next generation of the organism we're studying. So it's really a, a long, uh, long-term project that'll keep my students busy for years to come. Oh, it sure sounds like it. Listen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Okay, thanks a lot for, uh, for having me on. I appreciate it. That's Dr. Trevor Hamilton, Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology at McEwen University uh, in Alberta. They're talking about their work when it comes to studying microdosing and whether or not they can find benefits for you know, microdosing, even LSD, which seems to be a very popular topic of discussion these days, as Dr. Hamilton pointed out there. This is Mornings with Simi love this topic. Today we're going to be talking about how sometimes you feel like a word sounds 
how it should. Remember this? This was from like grade nine English class. That was a phenomenon called onomatopoeia. Raji Solhal is with us now to talk about an international study that has found a connection in this. Raji, hi. Hi, Simi. Yes, this is so fascinating, and I haven't been able to think about anything else besides it since hearing about it. So a UBC professor of linguistics, Marton Shoshkati, has been working with co-authors around the world on this, and they've co- they've uh, published their, their findings, and they found that one letter in particular, the letter R, when it is rolled, or they technically they call it trilled, so that's the R, Somehow in our brains, it crosses over with our sense of touch. Okay, Simi, once I heard this, I couldn't stop hearing it. And Martin is Hungarian himself, and he started by studying English and then his own language when they were looking at that R sound. And they took the study then to over 330 languages and found this wild correlation across all those languages between the sound of a trilled R and our sense of touch and feeling the roughness of the word representing the thing. Just wild. Here's Martin. My co-author originally had a look at English and he found this really interesting correlation, this interesting pattern, where it um, seems that words that refer specifically to rough surfaces, so, you know, words like rough and coarse and abrasive, um, they uh, often contain this R sound, like the R sound. Whereas if you look at words that refer to smooth surfaces, uh, they tend not to. We found the same pattern, right? So some of these words like coarse um, in Hungarian, uh, that would be erdes, uh, and the word like uh, rough, that would be durva. And as you can hear, you know, they also have that R sound. So from that point, we thought, well, okay, it's there in English. Um, it's there in this other completely unrelated language, uh, Hungarian, uh, right? We, they've had very different histories. They come from very different sources. Um, maybe, you know, this is a pattern that you'd find more generally across languages. Okay, so that's interesting. But what about the English language? Yeah, good question, Simi, because in North American English, we don't have so much of a trilled R, but you get it in Old English. Uh, the Scots also still have it. They have a lot of that trilled R, the R. You hear it in the way they say world for world, twirl. Uh, the Scots have this awesome word for describing a rainy and dark Scottish day, and that's drig. And I I feel like you really get a sense from the way that drig sounds of what that's describing. And I asked uh, Martin about the crossover between our senses, what's happening in our brains. And he says, there's a reason that part of this feels so intuitive to a lot of people. Like he's described his research to people who aren't in linguistics and they go, yeah, actually that makes sense that the R relates to describing something that's rough. And he said, there's actually an industry that without knowing about this research has already been making use of that connection. That industry, maybe unsurprisingly to some, is advertising. What we're finding here is that the general population uh, seems to have one of these really interesting connections between touch and sense. So this tells us something about the way that the mind works. And there's also a more practical side to this. And that's, uh, you know, if you think about like product designers or uh, marketing uh, and these areas, um, what, when you come out with a new product or a, or, a, or a new brand, you want to look for a description or you want to look for a name that's going to be memorable, that's going to uh, stick with people. 
Um, and we think that actually these kinds of patterns that we're finding, certainly the one that we have here, is something that you can exploit uh, to make that product name or that description more memorable. Right. So, for instance, just to give you a bit of a silly example, right? If you if you uh, um, came out with a with a new uh, brand of sandpaper, right? So, like the sandpaper for sanding a piece of wood, um, uh, you would probably do well to choose a name that has one of these R sounds in it, especially you know if it's in a language that has one of these uh, trilled R's. Um, you know that you would be basically building on that connection. Well, but there is actually an existing uh, brand out there. That that is relying on this on this connection. So if you think of the the famous ad for a brand of chips, the ruffles have ridges. Um, you know that that ad in particular is is using exactly the connection that we talk about because for that brand of chips, you know one of their main qualities is having that kind of um, rough surface, right? Like having the ridges on the surface, and 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 in their advertising, um, they are really uh, playing off of that by using uh, that trilled R pronunciation. Okay, I find this fascinating too, Raji. And I guess what it, also you think about it is a lot of people, some people can't make that sound, that trilled yeah. R sound. And they're probably the same people who tell you they have trouble learning other languages. Yeah, yeah, that's such an interesting point, Simi. We we don't have so much of a trilled R in the kind of uh, North American English that we speak, but I was thinking about how we use like a guttural R in advertising here sometimes, like that you know the let's get ready to rumble. Well, that yeah, exactly. rumble has that like guttural R in it. Or do you remember in the eighties the Frosted Flakes commercials that were they're great, great, <laughs> right? So I wow, I just coming across these examples now. I'm thinking kind of backwards and going, oh yeah, there is definitely a connection there. What is that connection in terms of our our brains and that crossover between touch and sound? They don't know, like they, they're still uh, exploring that, but it's a, a huge area. I know, I don't mean to put you on the spot, Simi, but I know that you have started learning some Italian. Oh, I've tried. <laughs> and I, my kindergarten is learning French in school now. And I wonder if there's a connection with people learning those languages easier because of this relationship, this connection between how something uh, might feel, our sense of touch, and that trilled R. I find Maybe. there is a real physicality to just my experience in trying to learn Italian because you really have to lean into it. You really have yeah. to lean into the accent and to the trilled R's and all the other parts of it. And that is just not something we do as much in English. So uh, I no. found it fascinating too. So thank you very much for that this morning. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about the Olympics. Yes, the Beijing Olympics are starting Friday. That's been a topic of conversation this week. But what else has been a topic about the Olympics? Well, the fact that Vancouver's potential bid for the 2030 Olympics has taken another step forward. We heard this week that we've got the you know Indigenous-led coalition. We've got the city of Vancouver. We've got the community of Whistler. And also now stepping in is the Canadian Olympic Committee and the Paralympic Committee to say, yes, let's join forces and see if we can make this happen. But will the International Olympic Committee look upon this favorably? Well, joining us now is the Professor Emeritus for Sport and Public Policy at the University of Toronto and a former Olympic track athlete, Bruce Kidd. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Good morning. What do you think of this idea of the Olympics coming back here? Well, it has a lot of very attractive features, and I'm glad it's being considered. 
and uh, and the the big questions answered as it goes ahead. Uh, there's a lot to be uh, concerned about in terms of a, an Olympic Games, a Winter Olympic and Paralympic Games. It's a huge undertaking. It uh, takes the the major energies of a community for probably a decade. Uh, it's very expensive. It's very politically complicated. So. Uh, it, it certainly needs a lot of very careful consideration. And yet, will the International Olympic Committee do something like that? It's only been 20 years, it would only have been at that point 20 years since we last hosted the Olympics. Is that something that they do? Well, I think the IOC will look very supportively uh, at a bid uh, because Vancouver Whistler in 2010, such successful games, the IOC is looking for a a liberal democratic host in the wake of Beijing 2022. There's a scarcity of good winter Olympic hosts right now and, and, and. But it's also going to ask some very hard questions. It will need a guarantee from a government with uh, taxing powers and a good credit rating to guarantee any deficit. Uh, It will want to see a positive vote in a plebiscite or a referendum uh, within the jurisdiction that uh, they will look to to guarantee any debt. And and thirdly, and maybe even more difficultly, um, they will they'll want a nation state uh, to guarantee diplomatic access uh, for all duly recognized uh, Olympic and Paralympic participants, i.e. they will need a and I'm I'm pretty sure they'll stick to this. Uh, the neither the the uh, indigenous bands nor the city of Vancouver can alone uh, grant uh, access to Canada, and so the IOC will need that too. But if those three points are uh, check marks, then I think the IOC will consider the bid very very seriously. You know, though, that second one, that's a huge obstacle. The idea that there would be a plebiscite that would uh, have to approve these Olympics, its a, I feel like it's a pretty divided thing here. Well, I think that's why the IOC uh, looks to, uh, to, to such an indication of support, majority support, before awarding the Games. They don't want to go into uh, a place where the community is divided, and you can well understand why. Does the IOC have that many choices anymore, though, Bruce? Because it doesn't seem like cities are lining up to do this. That's one of the complications. That is for sure. And I know that a lot of people in Lausanne uh, have sleepless nights uh, because there's not an easy answer to your question. Right. So has there been a history of, of the Olympics kind of going back to countries over and over again? Well, we've seen uh, both in the summer and the winter games uh, a return. Um, my memory's not perfect these days, but Innsbruck has been uh, a site. Uh, the Cortina, Italy uh, area is uh, a winter sport area, and uh, it's not that far from Turin. It was in um, in in 2006. Uh, okay. So. Uh, I, I don't think they've, they've ruled that out. Uh, one idea that's been out there for a while, 
uh, has been that there be a rotation of of the well-developed sites over a period of time so you can take advantage of the facilities that are already there and you can go to a place that has stability, has a supportive population and so on. So I don't think that the fact that Vancouver had successful games in 2010 uh, will be, um, uh, will be held against such a bit. Right. I remember, I'm old enough to remember this. I was in the business at the time when Vancouver was competing for that bid and, I mean, it was a huge endeavor that it felt like, you know, people got on board. It was such an exciting thing. You just winning the bid, finding out that day was such a huge thing. I don't, that does not seem to be the case anymore at all. Does the International Olympic Committee recognize, do you think, that the landscape has changed? Oh, for sure. I think they're, uh, they're, they're scared to death over that. I think that uh, if you talked about them, any... Any member of the IOC leadership, any member of the senior staff, uh, if you ask them that question, the the nervousness is palpable. They're scared to death about that. Right. So then does that put Canada in a better position when it comes to pitching these Olympics? Well, it means they're eager to find a site, but it it, it doesn't mean they're going to park their brains and go to a city where there's opposition or, or division uh, because that would be a very short-term uh, happy moment uh, and and seven or eight years of grief. Right. So that seems to be what we're moving towards here. But the uniqueness of this bid, though, the fact that it is Indigenous-led, does that change anything, do you think? I think that's a big plus. And if, uh, if, if, if the Indigenous uh, bands and... Uh, their supporters in uh, the Vancouver, British Columbia region uh, really shaped that bid. I think that's that's a huge plus for the IOC. I think the Olympic movement has has made a real effort to reach out and include populations, nations that haven't been uh, represented before. I mean, they're very proud of the refugee Olympic teams that they've had at the last uh, Olympic and Winter Olympic Games. And I think giving recognition to Indigenous uh, communities would be uh, something that they would be really attracted to. But they they would want to be reassured about the money and they'd want to be reassured about the public support. And um, and, and unless there's there's a major change, uh, an Indigenous nation in Canada still cannot uh, give uh, uh, visas for people to travel internationally. All right. There's still so many questions then. Uh, Bruce, thank you so much for your time. Okay. Okay. Thanks for asking. Have a good day. That's Bruce Kidd, Professor Emeritus in Sport and Public Policy at the University of Toronto and a former Olympic track athlete. Things have changed, right? This is not the same environment with which we pursued the 2010 Winter Olympics. And yet every step of the way when I have thought, oh, well, this, there's no way we're going to do this again, like 2030, no, like we did it once, we managed to get through it with a successful games, I don't think we should tempt fate. And yet I think that, and I, I keep hearing in the news, oh, we've taken another step forward, we've taken another step forward. So why would we want to do this again? Find a way in, send me at cknw.com.